This is Space 101.1 KMGP LPFM, Magnuson Park. That sound can mean only one thing. That's right, time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. Ah, it's so nice to see the meters going deep into the red there as the steam whistle on the SS Columbia blows, and Pat Cashman welcomes everyone aboard. Another live broadcast of Cascade of History. I am Felix Bunnell. It is Space 101.1 FM, a terrific community radio station. I'm broadcasting live from the, the old master-at-arms quarters at the historic Sandpoint Naval Air Station, better known nowadays as Magnuson Park, here along the shores of historic Lake Washington, right across the water from my hometown of Kirkland, Washington. We're also streaming at space101fm.org. And we are live. Uh, we do believe, everyone in the room tonight believes in the power of live and local radio to talk about local history and regional history on Cascade of History. We have a wonderful show for tonight, a bunch of great guests. Um, later on, we're going to talk to Phil Edlund from the uh, Save Parkland School. I did a couple stories about Parkland School for Cairo Radio for my regular day job and went down there and visited, saw the school and visited with the people working on it. We're going to hear all about uh, what they've been able to do down there at uh, Parkland down in Pierce County and some good news about that project and to trying to preserve this gorgeous community school right along the main highway there, one of the only remaining landmarks in a place that has changed a lot in the last couple decades. So we'll talk to Phil Edland, who's with that project. We'll also hear from our intrepid roving correspondent, um, Ken Zick. He, it's, it's been a while since we've sent Ken out into the field to uh, pester the people at a, I don't know, a, a threatened bowling alley or an endangered theater or I uh, can't remember where else we've sent him around, but... Um, I think he's at his uh, non-endangered home tonight, but he was out earlier trying to be live in the field for us, but we're going to hear about the results of what he tried to do and what he was able to do instead. Um, we're also going to hear, oh, do you remember, um, do you remember our, the series we've been doing? I'm, how can you forget, of course? Um, we have this vintage audio from 1938. The old radio station KOMO did this Washington at Work program, and they focused on the then brand new Second and Pike location of the J.C. Penney department store. And uh, I don't know, we're, we're, I think we had, we've had six installments so far. Maybe, I'm sure you remember how, how last week's installment ended. Just being a mere man here, I, I wouldn't attempt to describe this department. I'm wondering if you have uh, one of your young women here who wouldn't mind giving us a description from a woman's standpoint. Well, we do have just that woman, Miss Reynolds. Yes, Miss Reynolds. I think like most of us, you've been thinking about Miss Reynolds all week and wondering what she would do to show our... 70, no, how long ago? 85 year ago, uh, KOMO uh, journalist, reporter, radio guy traipsing around the brand new department store to learn about each, each painful detail of every department of every floor of that building. So, Miss Reynolds, I guarantee you'll, you'll want to stay tuned to hear Miss Reynolds. We'll do that. We'll, we'll surprise you at some point with that. But before we get to all that other wonderful stuff here on Cascade of History, um, We've got viewer mail. We're going to have going to try a new segment tonight. So when you hear this sound a little bit later on, it's pretty quiet. <laughs> Let's try it one more time. <laughs> when you hear that noise later, that that's a cue that um, a piece of viewer mail has arrived. And uh, we'll read the mail. Uh, someone who listened very carefully to last week's episode and had some bones to pick with me about it. So we'll, we'll get to that at some point during the show. But I want to welcome our first guest here. Let's see. It's Marcus Farner. He's the exhibition manager at Coquitlam Heritage. There's a pretty cool exhibit going on up there. And let's see if I can get press the right button here and get Marcus on the radio. Marcus Farner, can you hear me? Hang on. Let's see. Oh, there we go. Marcus, can you hear me? Yes. Uh, I didn't press the right button. It's always a huge uh, suspenseful moment when, whether or not I press the right button to uh, get our guest live on the air and well you know it's, it's been a week since I've done this you have to bear with me it's always it's like I'm doing it for the first time uh, every, every Sunday night here on uh, Space 101.1 FM so alright well thanks for making time out of your Sunday evening to uh, join us and talk about 
A couple things. I, I actually heard a, a story about this project you guys are doing. I heard it on CBC Radio a week or so ago, and I thought, boy, that sounds like something fun to talk about here on Cascade of History. But um, first of all, before we get into that, you're with an organization that's called Coquitlam Heritage. For, for someone who has no idea where Coquitlam is, give us, the, give us the lowdown on that and then tell us what Coquitlam Heritage is all about. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, thanks for having me, and uh, I'm really I'm really thrilled to be on your show, so that's awesome. Um, well, Coquitlam Heritage has been around for for quite a while. Um, we, we, we sort of, like, in 1999, we, we kind of started occupying that uh, Mackenhouse building. Um, but before I sort of go into it, let me just sort of acknowledge that... Uh, Coquitlam Heritage is grateful to operate on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Coquitlam First Nation who continue to live on these lands and care for them uh, along with the waters and all that is above and below them. Uh, the lands are also the traditional territories of the Sabertooth, Great Crab, and the Katsi First Nation. And, and we're really grateful that we, we are able to, to you know, live on those lands and, and work there. Uh, Mecham House itself is uh, is an old uh, is an old building. It's built in in, in 1909, um, and it's been like we or like the Confederate Heritage has been in it since yeah 1999. Uh, we're a heritage organization. Um, we're the local museum, and we sort of kind of yeah the, the the custodians I would say of of Mecham House, this old house for the managers from the Fraser Mills. Uh, we have a little train station uh, next to us, uh, built in 1910, and we have a 1970 caboose. And, and sort of, they all sort of fit, fit in a little square. And, and in it, we have, of course, the Mecken House, along with this old uh, Edwardian house. But what is really important, I think what sort of really marks uh, Coquitlam Heritage is that, uh, yes, you know, we're sort of, we have this old Edwardian house and we have a really magnificent collection of all sort of items. We used to be a toy uh, museum at one point, so we have a really cool uh, selection of toys as well. And, wow. Um, but w- what we're trying to do is, you know, like for the longest time, sort of museums uh, are and, well, have been and still are sort of gatekeepers. And we're trying to open up and, and, you know, sort of kind of become like a portal, really, for, for community voices, uh, for diverse uh, voices that, that, that often have been ignored. And I think that's really sort of is what I think really marks us and what I realized that sort of is the spirit of, of our team, that it's for all of us. It's so important um, to bring, uh, you know, those, bring those voices to life uh, and, and and, and make sure that we, you know, like realize, oh, you know, where we might have been sort of very exclusive and, and, and uh, in, in a way, you know, acting as gatekeepers, that we, you know, we don't do this and, and we'll open up and bring all these new voices in. And, you know, like that's why I think I'm really excited also about the, the Cornerstone Project. Now, I, I love what you're saying about um, museums being more accessible, being part of a conversation uh, and... and uh, lifting up voices that have been sort of silenced for, for far too long. I mean, the same is true here south of the border. Um, you know, it's social change is moving rapidly at times. Sometimes it goes backwards. Sometimes it goes forwards. And, you know, I, I, I'm of the age where I remember um, going to the museum, a little community mu- museum down near where I grew up over in, uh, on the east side of Lake Washington, so east of Seattle, and they, you know, they they would bring out the, the the iron, like the here's the iron that you could heat up on the stove, and you know here's a butter churn, and it was all very focused on how you know settlers, how European settlers essentially had come to this wild land, you know, quote unquote, discovered all these rivers and discovered all these things that you know didn't need to be discovered. They they've been here for millennia, and there were indigenous people here since time immemorial and everything. So anyway, I just in my relatively short life, and I you know I'm in my fifties. I've seen just massive evolution of how stories are told and how history is presented and what history even means. Um, it's so much more, just in the last couple of years even, the activist or the the really uh, strenuous, that's what we're looking for, sort of really a muscular role of history to sort of wrap its arms around these current issues 
and try to make up for so much, so many decades or centuries of stories that haven't been told or, you know, the, the, the dominant European settler culture that wrote all the books and curated all the exhibits up until like 1995. Um, it's, 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 there's, so much, there's so many more great stories that haven't been told yet. And I'm excited about all these kinds of changes and, and daylighting all these things that have been sort of just, you know, I, I don't think it was a malicious thing. I, don't, I just think it was just a, a, a kind of conqueror, great theory, you know, kind of great men of history kind of approach to things that oh, was, yeah, was yeah. true all over, you know, North America, certainly. Um, and for, for people who don't know the geography, give us an idea. Where's Coquitlam in relation to Vancouver, B.C.? Yeah, so, like, <laughs> we sort of, uh, like, uh, Coquitlam sort of is, uh, you have it sort of a little bit more to the east. Uh, if you sort of imagine you're standing in, in, in Vancouver, and then you sort of turn around and you're sort of facing out, out east as if you're going back to the east coast. And then it's sort of like 30, 30 minutes or 40 minutes in the car out there. And we all form sort of part of that, uh, what is called the Tri-Cities, right? So you have where we are, uh, Coquitlam, uh, you have Port Coquitlam, and you have Port Moody. They form sort of like three communities, and of course, and there's like going to be in between us and Vancouver. Yeah. And, and, but it's sort of a smaller, uh, you know, to what it referred to, sort of a, a kind of a bedroom kind of community where probably most people uh, commune and go to work in, in Vancouver. Yeah. And there was, and there was a mill there at some point in the 100 years ago or the late 19th century, oh, there was a big mill? And that's really the crucial thing what kind of brought I guess why I'm talking to you, <laughs> because otherwise we would have not, we probably would not be here. So um, it, they, they had the Fraser Mill. Uh, it's uh, one of the, I think the second biggest uh, uh, lumber company in, in, in the British Empire. And uh, it was huge. Um, it, um, it was founded in 1889. Um, and then later on, sort of, I think in the 70s, uh, was taken over by a different company and then it slowly vanished. But it, it, for the longest time, this was it. Like everyone that you would have talked to would have probably in some form or other would have worked at, at the Fraser Mills, um, you know, cutting lumber, doing all sorts of things. And that's what Mackin House is. We are the manager's house. So the first manager that, uh, that moved into this house in 1909 was Henry Mackin, who lived there with his uh, family. And then eventually, as he got promoted, he, he sort of hopped across the street into a house that's called Ryan House. It's still there as well, uh, mm -hmm. which right now sort of uh, is called Plaza Arts. They have ballet, dance, and all sort of art programs. And it's just around a, a literally like, you know, stone throw from us so when you got promoted you would move into the big house yeah. and and Metton house is also a, a rather crazy mill it's the one that really shaped um our place so you know like initially there's well lots of hundreds of workers there like they have a large workforce of chinese japanese and south asian workers uh that work on the mill uh, and then Sort of around 1907, there's a couple of race riots. Chinatown in Vancouver uh, gets destroyed by a mob of raging uh, people, and they destroy and burn down quite a lot of Chinatown. And, and the, the sort of these race relations boils over. The, a lot of the South Asian workers realize that they've been paid way less um, and had harder conditions than any of the white workers. So dealing with this, uh, uh, Fraser Mills decides to throw them all out and, you know, not address the issue at all. They send someone out, uh, out and he brings back um, in 1909 French settlers uh, that come and, and, and take over the positions that have been emptied. And they build, that's why we have also like a French settlement really made by, which is called Mayardville, huh. built in a sort of very traditional French style. You have like the Catholic church in the middle surrounded by, I think initially there's about 10 or 20 uh, families there, and they settle around there. Um, and so this is really interesting because you see how like that company and, and the workforce sort of really shaped, uh, you know, the... The settler part of of Coquitlam, right? Huh. That's cool. That's great. I, you know, I, I got, I, I love this show because 
you know, I've seen Coquitlam on the map. I've probably driven through Coquitlam before. But just talking to you for the last 10 minutes or so about the history of the mill and about the, the labor unrest and the different communities brought in, I feel like I know more about Coquitlam than I've ever known before. So I think well, no, I, I'm enjoying I, myself. I, I, I'm really having a good time on this show. I hope other pe- hope the listeners are enjoying themselves because I certainly am. Um, now, this, this corner store project—that's this, this, the, the, the new project that's going on right now that I heard about on CBC—and it just it totally yeah. captured my imagination because, I mean, corner stores are all over the world. Every every place I've ever been has the sort of the equivalent of a corner store. And, and they're often beloved, and sometimes they're long gone, but gee, the building's still there, and people have fond memories. And so, tell me, what was what was the what is the corner store project, and where did the idea come from? Yeah, so the idea came originally from one of our city councilors, Steve Kim. He, he talked about um, the fact that you know, like almost not all, but a whole lot of immigrants when they come to this country, uh, they end up uh, in. Uh, opening a corner store. And, and some of the reasons are not that that's just sort of in their blood and they want to do it, but they come to this country and they often realize that, you know, their their university qualifications are not recognized. Uh, they need sort of, uh, I would say sort of, uh, some people refer to it as sort of that, you know, Canadian experience or something that they feel like they, well, employers feel they don't need it, what, you know, like they've all sort of various hurdles and 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 so what is open to them is well a corner store and they open it up and 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 that's that's sort of what the initial start of the idea and then um um that was a little bit actually before my time even they sort of kind of you know like uh, our team was bouncing this idea back and forth and they said it's also like this is really important uh from that point of view, but it's also something more to it. These stores, they kind of come and they disappear, um, and, and there's, of course, uh, life stories attached to it in form of the owner's own uh, history or, like, you know, the people to visit them, and, and then to be, sort of follow the mission of of, of, of Coquitlam Heritage that we want to be, you know, almost say like a transistor that magnifies and amplifies these voices, brings them out, and then, of course, that is our mission, right? History is not just a tangible object, but it is more than that. It's like also the oral history and, and, and just taking, sort of putting your finger on the pulse of, of the time and recording these. And I think that's really an important part uh, where we want to kind of include this in our collection. Um, and then sort of the idea is, yes, let's go out there and, and capture the stores as they are uh, each of the stores has, uh, we have conducted like oral history with all the store owners. So there's a whole lot of uh, background material as well, a lot of pictures um, and audio material that goes together that tells the story for, for people now to enjoy, but also for one day, well, to enter our collection and be there as a, as a record. That's really cool. So how many different stores did you do these oral histories and photographs and documentation? Uh, we have 10 stores. We have 10 stores uh, that, that we captured. Um, there were a couple of stores that for various reasons, uh, you know, like I think one or two stores literally went out of business before we, we had the chance oh. to get our foot through the door and disappeared. And then some were remodeling. You know how it is. But like yeah. anyway, so we have about those 10, those 10 stores that are really well uh, documented and it's really great because you know they are um, I mean you mentioned it as well like, you know like they're all over the place it's, these are the you know like people that don't drive you know like the kids older folks or people for whatever reason not driving you know like you have that store in the corner so it really is an I think it's such an essential part of of the community um, that, that, that we kind of highlighted here and it was really beautiful when when we had the opening and um, there were so many people coming in that some of them had i think no idea that the exhibition opener was happening and they said oh my god i've been to the store i bought a gallon of milk here and 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 you suddenly realize yeah you know like this is important just that you, you take it for granted and before you know it the store might be gone i hope not but it can happen right um and, and it's an important part, and it's also a really important part for community, because that's where you meet, uh, they know you, they really, 
you know, they know your face. <laughs> they greet you, and, and that's a really nice feeling as well. Was uh, of those ten stores that you profiled? Was there one where the was there one that that was the the, the original store went back like many many decades, if not f- further, and then the the owner had been there for a long time? Or what was the longest owner that had, that had been in place in those I 10 stores? The, the longest, I think some of these are sort of kind of going back about, I think about sort of 10, 10 years or something. So we, we don't, there are, we have some stores um, that go really far, but they have actually been um, changed in between and are no longer there. So, you know, there are some stores that go back to, to the French settlers, um, there's uh, like an English immigrant in 1919, and he, uh, James Patton and his later his daughter Esther Patch, they opened a really uh, successful corner store. But these are unfortunately all all gone, and including uh, the buildings. Sometimes the buildings are there, but they've been converted or something. But I think like ours that uh, that we sort of profiled, uh, I'd say in one form or the other, they go at least, some of them go maybe five, seven years back or something. Wow. That's so cool because I, th- I think, I mean, the value of doing that right now is interesting to be able to sort of look at the commonalities and sort of know more about these places that you, like you say, just picked up a bottle of milk from or a popsicle or something. Yeah. But then I, I like to think of the materials, that audio and those photographs and any other, anything, any other information you gathered. God, 10 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, it'll be priceless because, I mean, think how cool it would be to have a project like this that was done 100 years ago to know the backstories of all of, of stores a hundred years ago. So the, the material only gets more valuable through time, which I think is really cool. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's why we also, we are really interested in this. You know, like what people think like, oh, well, you know, I have nothing to contribute to a museum or something, but they are wrong because, you know, like this is, you are right now part of history, right? And so if, if you record something, how, how we gone to a shop or something, in a hundred years' time, you know, scholars or, or visitors to the museum will think, wow, this is so interesting. You know, we had a corner store um, just pretty much opposite the museum, and I think sort of the story is, I don't know when it was, probably in the, maybe sort of World War II area, so, uh, and I think like her husband, uh, she, she and her husband, I think, had the store. He had a, a terrible accident on, 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 on at sea, and he came back and could no longer work, and then she, for the longest time, you know, kept that store alive to obviously provide for the family. Now, as far as I know, there's not a whole lot of material on them. Um, but what I think what we've done with this project is, well, we will ensure that in the next hundred years, you know, someone can come and they can uh, put their finger as an oral history and, and lead through a lot of amazing pictures. Uh, the photographer, Jonathan Desmond, done an awesome job of, of of capturing the owners and sort of capturing the essence of the stores as well. That's very cool. Now, is there an online component to this, or do people have to come to Coquitlam to really fully experience this? Well, I would, of course, encourage them all to come to our museum. <laughs> they do most of it far away. But yes, I mean, they, they can actually jo- uh, go to our website, um, uh, coquitlamheritage.ca, and, and then on there, there is a, a link to the Corner Store Project and then there's actually a really cool virtual tour uh, where they can click on it and they can see the entire exhibition as if they were literally there and could walk through. That's terrific. Well, listen, Marcus Farner, it's really nice to meet you over the phone like this. I hope I can make it to Coquitlam soon. Um, wait, what Now, the, the exhibit will be on display at the museum until when? Um, it'll be there till March, end of March. Uh, so end of March next year. Oh, uh, what did I say? No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of, end of, oh my God, yes. no, that's uh, till, uh, till the end of May. Sorry. End of May, okay, all right. Well, listen, keep in touch. If you have other projects coming up, we'd love to hear about them, and um, we'll, I'll put information on the Cascade of History Facebook page, and, and we'll send people your way. But um, listen, thanks for taking yeah. time on a Sunday evening to chat with us about Coquitlam Heritage. Oh, it was lovely. Yeah, listen, nice talking to you, Marcus. Have a good evening. You do. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. That's Marcus Farner, the exhibition manager at Coquitlam Heritage up in Coquitlam, B.C. As we do here on Cascade of History, we like to go all over the Northwest, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, British Columbia. Uh, God, we're overdue to visit Idaho, I think, by phone sometimes. We'll have to see if we can get someone from Idaho on the show for next week. Maybe even someone from Montana, because that's still, that kind of counts, like extreme western Montana. Um, now, I really want to encourage people to send uh, send in viewer mail because, uh, you know, I got this great sound effect. Remember this? 
That's one of those uh, old U.S. post office uh, department mailboxes being opened and closed on the sidewalk. Um, got a, an email from Brian Ummel. You can, I think, I hope I'm pronouncing your last name correctly, Brian. Um, you can send mail to cascadeofhistory at gmail.com. And if you're if it's good enough, we'll read it on the air. And we don't get many, so we'll probably read it on the air, even if it's not good enough. But this one's pretty good. This is about last week's show. And um, what Brian said was, Felix, I enjoy your show. I have two comments on episode 24. One issue is with your segment on Memorial Stadium. In my opinion, it was a terrible stadium. I believe it rained every Friday night between 1955 and 1958, which is when Queen Anne usually played. Apparently, the lack of proper drainage resulted in the field becoming a large mud bath with both teams' uniforms indistinguishable. In addition, all the seats were on the north side. Now, I don't know if that's true. So the usual south winds soaked all the spectators. I'm not aware this was ever fixed. <laughs> I think Brian's being a little facetious there, but I like it. I like the tone. His next comment is a little more serious. He says, in your segment on Viewmaster, where we had a Katie Mayer from the Oregon Historical Society talking about a cool Viewmaster uh, mushroom field guide in their collection. Ryan says, in your segment on Viewmaster, it was implied that the Viewmaster name was not used until the company was purchased by GAF. And he says, the following photos of the front and back of my prized 1950 disc of Hopalong Cassidy show this was not true. And he's actually included photographs of his uh, thumbnails there holding up a Viewmaster reel, and it says Hopalong Cassidy, William Boyd, and Topper. And it says uh, it's a Viewmaster reel. And because uh, I think what I had said, I'd asked Katie and I asked John, I kind of put her on the spot because, I, you know, we, I, I wasn't thinking, trying to go into a granular history of Viewmaster. But I asked Katie, like, when that Viewmaster name was first applied to the stereoscopic viewer discs that were created by Sawyers, that Portland company. And apparently I did a little bit of uh, research, you know, which means like typing in and looking on Wikipedia. It seems like that Viewmaster name was used almost Almost when they released these things, um, probably 1939, that Viewmaster name could date to. I couldn't confirm that, but it looks like it goes back about, oh boy, probably 30 years more than I thought it did, back to right around 1940 when they were uh, first issuing what we all came to know as Viewmaster reels um, made by Sawyers and then taken over by GAF. So anyway, uh, Brian Ummel, thanks for writing in. Thanks for listening to the show. Uh, remember, if you send a want to send a message, go to cascadeofhistory at gmail.com and it'll give me an excuse to play that really irritating sound effect every single time. Okay, um, speaking of irritating sound effects, I, before we have our next, next guest Phil Edland on, I want to play, remember first of all, remember what happened last week, just in case you missed the tease at the top of the show. Just being a mere man here, I, I wouldn't attempt to describe this department. I'm wondering if you have uh, one of your young women here who wouldn't mind giving us a Description from a woman's standpoint. Well, we do have just that woman, Miss Reynolds. Well, I think it's time we all meet Miss Reynolds. So here it is. This is installment number seven in our long series of visiting J.C. Penney in 1938. Would be very happy, I'm sure, and she can give us a very good picture of this floor from a woman's viewpoint. Well, Miss Reynolds, um, I wonder if you'd tell us what you think the woman will see when she first comes on the second floor. Well, the thing that strikes me when I first step on the floor is the large display of hats that they have and the lighting system. They have the new indirect lighting, side walls, and then again we have so many hats, the whites, navies, blacks, and so many of the high shades that they're wearing now. I can't see why any woman would walk into this department and couldn't find a hat. I see. Well, what is this millinery bar over here with all these mirrors and the fluorescent lighting effects? This, isn't that what they call it over here, the millinery yes, bar? Yes, the millinery bar. Mm -hmm. Is that arranged so that the women can try on their hats with the ultimate of convenience? I believe it's the best arrangement I've ever seen in Seattle. Why sh hats and shoes are so close together in this department? Is there any rhyme or reason to that? Well, don't you think they go together? <laughs> well, I suppose so. <laughs> when we buy, a, the women come up here and buy a coat or a dress, the next thing they want is a nice pair of shoes and a hat. What's the main color scheme on this floor, would you say, offhand? What uh, combination of colors in the walls and in the floor? Buff and uh, taupe. Buff and taupe. In other words, a very light and cheerful atmosphere here. Very. And extremely well lighted. Well, now, I wonder, Mr. Thorson, if I can uh, persuade you to follow me along uh, between these display tables that we mentioned and just take a look into this room, which had the caption uh, Women's Lounge on it. I noticed this is finished in a very lovely shade of light jade green. And we have modernistic 
furniture of all kinds furnished in colorful leather. That's right. Uh, this is arranged for the general convenience of all the women patrons, isn't it? That's right. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, all I can say is that uh, this certainly must be a grand place in which to work. And this is one of the finest places that I can think of to work. We uh, are going to have to hurry now down to the first floor because we have the first floor and the basement we have to cover, so may we say thanks and right. bye. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, Bob, now that we're down on the first floor, uh, I just begin to remember that you foxed me on the second floor. We never did find that hat that we are going to locate. Uh, well, that's a joke on you, Ken. The joke is on Ken um, because the uh, Bob didn't show him where the hat was. So eh, I have to find out what happens with uh, installment number eight next week on our ongoing series of visiting J.C. Penney in downtown Seattle in 1938. It's Cascade of History. I'm Felix Bunnell. We've got about another half of the show to go. It's actually exactly 8:30 here in the studios of Space 101.1 FM, Master at Arms quarters at the old Sandpoint Naval Air Station, nowadays known as Magnuson Park. Listen, Space 101.1 FM, it's a great station with uh, all kinds of cool programming going on all throughout the week. Uh, lots of people put together music shows and art shows and public affairs shows. And if you go to the website, space101fm.org, you can see a full schedule. You can also donate there, too, because this is a completely volunteer-run station, um, but the electricity isn't volunteer, and some of the equipment isn't a volunteer. So uh, anything you're willing to do to support this uh, whole station, this whole outfit, we would be grateful to have it. And we couldn't do it without you, so thanks for your support. Um, we've got uh, our next guest joining us here in a minute. Uh, this is Phil Edlin. Let's see if we can get Phil Edlin on the phone here. Phil, are you there? Oh, hang on a second. Wait a minute. There's that button to press. Phil, are you there? Yes, I am. Thank uh, you, Felix. Terrific. Thank you so much for making time on a Sunday night to join us here on Cascade of History. Um, oh, one thing I wanted to say before uh, we go on with this, I, I just played this two-minute audio piece, this old J.C. Penney audio recording from 1938, and just to peel the curtain back a little bit, I have to play something so I can, so Marcus, our previous guest, can hang up the phone, and then I can text you to have you dial in, since it's just me here in the studio, and there isn't, the phone system's very rudimentary, so anyway... <laughs> If that if that J.C. Penny audio, if, if hearing episode number seven seems tedious, it's it's for a good good cause. So anyway, enough of the behind the scenes stuff. So um, Phil, you're with the group Save Parkland School, and you're you're the project manager or one of the project managers. I'm one of the consultants on the project that's been helping orchestrate the preservation effort within the Parkland Community Association. All right. Now, for someone who doesn't know where Parkland is, where is where is Parkland? We are approximately 30 miles south of Seattle, just south of the Tacoma City limits, and it's the home of Pacific Lutheran University. Okay. And what's the, there's a state highway that kind of goes sort of the main drag right through Parkland. That's Highway 7? Yes, Highway 7 or the Mountain Highway to Mount Rainier, and also State Route 512 are the two major yeah. um, state highways. I mean, that's the, the most times I've been in Parkland has been driving, have been driving through the highway on the way to Mount Rainier. And I didn't know about the Parkland School until I heard that it was threatened, which must be, boy, more than a year ago. Was it last summer of 2022 when that was first an issue? I'm trying to remember now. Um, I believe it was early to mid-spring of 2022 as I'm looking at my timeline. Okay. I know that we uh, became aware of the possibility of its demolition on May 15th, and then we attended the... Um, Pierce County Landmarks and Historic Preservation Meeting, and more than 80 people who previously never knew each other showed up all with the exact same message without any prior coordination about how important this this building and this this landmark is to the identity of the Parkland community. And, yeah, and I was there at that meeting. What a great meeting! It was so uh, it was so uplifting. I love when people show up like that, and they're everyone's a volunteer. Everybody's spending time on a on an otherwise, you know, a weekday evening where it'd be much nicer to be just home with your feet up, <laughs> watching TV, but everyone's there out because they care about this landmark. Um, so, for if someone's never seen Parkland School, first of all, tell us how they find up information on the web so they can look at pictures if they want to look at pictures right now. But also, sort of, kind of describe what it looks like and kind of tell a little tell us a little bit about its history. Certainly. So, if you go on to Google and type in save uh, our historic parkland school or the historic parkland school you'll see our website on a google uh, web page you can also find us on our facebook um, account um, under the uh, save parkland school 
So I believe it's SaveOurHistoricParkOfTheSchool.org on, on, on our website. And the school itself is located on the corner of 121st Street South and Highway 7. So it's right in the traffic light, the major intersection right in, in the heart of Parkland as you come into the Main Street area by Pacific Christian University. And I know there's a there's a big gulf typically between, hey, we got the city or the county or the landmarks board to say that's a landmark and say that, you know, it's gonna we're gonna preserve it. And there's a big leap between that and between actually preserving a building, doing all the work it needs to make it habitable, doing everything to make it a community resource again. And do I understand you guys have made great strides toward that end? Yes. Yeah, so the the first major hurdle was uh, negotiating with Pacific Lutheran University for another option rather than demolition. And so that was done initially with a conversation with council members uh, Hitton and Campbell, uh, but also there were three of us, two of us who are Pacific Lutheran University alums, who actually made it a point to reach out to President Alan Dalton with our plan for it, thinking that they were giving us this one-year stay on demolition to be able to come up with a different proposal for it. And so while that supposedly was not the intent of the Historic Preservation Landmarks Commission uh, from the county, they saw this as that we've done enough forethought behind the plan to really turn this into a community and cultural center that would be a community asset for years to come that they allowed us to have a year uh, from the time of that letter to be able to come up with a um, viable option for for the building. And so um, what they were going to do is still develop apartments on the west side of the lot. And in order to do that, they would have to do a boundary uh, lot line adjustment since the existing lot line between the east and west parcels ran through the middle of the gymnasium, Mm. which is one of the few WPA projects from the Great Depression still standing in the area, which people have compared to looking at the gymnasium in the 1990s movie Hoosiers. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was in that. Yeah, I was in that gymnasium. I can vouch for that. It's it's an amazing, uh, unlike anything I know anywhere in the in the rest of the state, as far as I know. For sure. So um, it took quite a while for that boundary lot line adjustment to happen. It didn't happen until November 3rd, as far as the recording date. So there was no way for us to even. Uh, draft a purchase and sale agreement without knowing how much property was going to be there, how much parking would still be left around the building, and also an actual legal description to put in a purchase and sale. And so the um, offer from PLU was whatever that remaining lot would be that included the school building and gymnasium, that it would be a $2.85 million purchase. And so um, given that that was almost three months into the 12-month period, we were able to successfully negotiate a purchase and sale agreement with a due diligence period ending November 3rd of this year to make a decision on are we going to continue to go forward, um, whether we have all of the uh, funding for it, or if we at least have 50% of the funds committed um, and sign an extension and put down the earnest money to continue on with the project. So. When that finally happened, we were able to successfully find the uh, purchase and sale agreement here earlier in, I believe it was at the end of March. So that's fully executed as of the end of March. And then on March 28th, we actually uh, went to Olympia and testified for the House Capital Budget Committee under um, uh, Senate or Hospital on March 7 to be able to apply for funding that we had submitted back in February to complete the purchase of the building. And so that's step one, that basically guarantees the building is no longer at risk of being demolished. And right now, while we have the signed agreement with PLU during our due diligence period, there's also not a risk of it being sold to somewhere else. So our plan is to aggressively pursue the funding for this purchase and immediately get a new roof on the building seal up the building envelope to um, preserve the building from any further decay. And then from that point, it will be working with uh, community partners that will be the service providers in the building for things such as family services, for a clothing bank, or possibly a food bank, some uh, youth recreational activities, and after-school activities to help 
give the youth in the area something safe to construct or to do after school. And then that will determine what sorts of renovations need to happen for those purposes so that we can also pursue funding in the community, which we know of at least two, um, two benefactors who are waiting to see if, that we actually purchase this building who will then unleash generosity um, to help us renovate and adapt and reuse the space for the good of the community. That's that's great. I mean, God, congratulations to make it this far because so many projects just never make it even this far. Um, and the fact that one thing is pretty amazing. I remember talking to some of the the people who were there that night at that at one of those. I went to a couple meetings. I went to one of the meetings out at the one of the elementary schools nearby, and then at that meeting that was at the county offices uh, not long after that. But it seems like you guys have successfully moved beyond the adversarial phase where. The neighbors and community members and even alums like yourself are not happy about what PLU was doing. But then you're able to get the, you know, you get the, the Landmarks Commission finds in your favor. And then, I think it sounds like you guys are smart and strategic. You get the alums to lead the effort to sort of kind of patch things up with PLU and then move beyond that and move into a much more productive phase. I, I think that's really amazing. You guys should, uh, it seems like a good case study. I mean, depending how it all turns out, of course. But it seems that that post-adversarial work to patch things up seems like it's really key to what, what you've been able to accomplish so far. Yes, and I want to also make clear that PLU has been really um, helpful as far as giving us access to the building as we've been doing our due diligence to assess the condition of the building and to do a complete inventory of all the different fixtures and, and windows and doors and finishes and quantities that are in there so that as we do our due diligence to come up with an estimate of the restoration. Um, we're able to have some some solid uh, data on the facility to be yeah. able to, to price things out. Yeah. Um, and you know we're we're open to partnering with PLU and even the developer of the property to the uh, west of us because we really feel this is a crucial piece of um, community asset to bridge the different uh, demographics of the parking community. You have PLU, which is a huge one. You have people that are in the Franklin Pierce School District. You have people at KBLM, and not everyone is associated with PLU. Um, and so we want to be sensitive that we're inclusive in this process to make sure that this is a resource for everyone in the park, greater parking community. Yeah, I mean, it, it's almost like a gateway to the whole community there, the way that the way the school is located right along the highway and the way there's that, you know, the the camp, the beautiful campus is just a few blocks, you know, up the road there. It, it seems like it has the potential to be a positive for everybody because, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but Parkland doesn't actually have the kind of facility that you're talking about to have these sort of multiple services and recreational facilities and things available right in the center part of essentially downtown Parkland, right? Correct. We do have other recreational facilities that the community fought long and hard for, such as Sprinkler Recreational Center, which is really on the border between Parkland and Spanaway, but that's not in the heart of Parkland, and it's also not on Pacific Avenue. It's located about two blocks off of Pacific Avenue, yeah. right on the Parkland-Spanaway border. This is on a major transit line that will become a bus rapid transit line. There's um, a Blue Zones effort to really address the um, core causes of different uh, challenges in the community, such as uh, they've done a study that shows that people in the 98444 zip code of Parkland, on average, live 10 years less than surrounding zip codes. Wow. Um, so there's there's health issues. There's also crime and poverty issues. And so we really see having this as a center or a hub for Blue Zones to even operate programs out of is a critical piece, given its access to transit. Um, the park and ride that's there that I understand is going to undergo some redevelopment that will help with um, parking concerns for all the neighboring properties, uh, but also being accessible to the vast, um, diverse demographics of the community. I mean, that if, if you guys manage to pull this off, I mean, the fact that, again, the location, this thing will be like a beacon. It will be a example project to show what can be done in other communities where big institutions own real estate and the community has certain needs. And there's, I mean, it's all the different pieces are there. And if, if if people like you are able to orchestrate it and move move all the sort of tiles around to have it all line up, it's fabulous. Now, I think November 3rd is a little more than six months from now. 
Um, it seems like you guys have a pretty big, long, pretty long to-do list. So what's what's the priority for the next next couple months? So our biggest priority uh, now that we've had our 501c3 officially reinstated as of, I believe, the end of February or beginning of March, and we've cleared the hurdle of having this purchase and sale agreement negotiated, our focus is on community awareness. We are having a fundraising kickoff event on Saturday, March 20th from 12 p.m. noon. May 20th, May 20th, I think, right? Yes, May 20th. Okay. Sorry. So um, that will be at Keithley Middle School, which is just on the west side of the TLU Lower Campus, next to Washington High School. It's kind of where um, 12th Avenue and I believe 124th Street South meet. And so that will be a time for the community, alumni of Parkland School, and people who support the effort that we're doing. Because we know that Parkland School's been in existence for over 115 years. This will be the 115th celebration of the original part of the school building and a time for our alumni and supporters who have no longer been in this area but are still very supportive of this effort to come together with the community to help support the effort of, of purchasing this, this facility and adaptively using it for a community asset for the next century. Yeah, that's great. Boy, you know, if there's anything I can do to help spread the word, let me know. I should probably do another story on Cairo, maybe uh, maybe in it before that May 20th um, event. Let's plan on doing something again and, and uh, for one of my Wednesday morning stories because uh, the combination of what you guys are doing, the, all the community support, big institution sort of uh, seeing the community support and changing its mind, and all the need there in Parkland for some some facility to house a bunch of different projects and services and recreational opportunities, boy, I'm excited. I really I, f- I have a good feeling about this, and I hope it all turns out as as best as possible. Now, you already mentioned this before when I first asked you, but where can people go to find out more, and how can they best support you guys in your efforts? Is, is there a, what's your website address? So the website address is saveparklandschool.org. And so that has the information on the May 20th event. It also has a link to our Facebook, and it also has a link to donate to our cause, uh, the history of how we ended up here, and also um, how to subscribe to be on our updated um, email list as we continue to update those at least once a week as new um, new updates happen. And right. we definitely have feel, feel we have a lot of momentum and feel that that's a good sign of things to come. Terrific. And we'll put links to everything on the Cascade of History Facebook page and make sure that we share um, all that contact information because if people want to get involved or go to that event on, uh, on May 20th. The, it is a gorgeous school. I, the PLU folks took me on a tour of it before one of those meetings, and I got to go up all through the upper floors, and there, it's, a, it's very solid. Obviously, it needs some, needs some uh, TLC to, in terms of the roof and things like that, but, boy, in terms of something to start with, for the kind of project you guys are envisioning, you couldn't really you couldn't have a better a better building in a better spot and in a better community. So, God, uh, keep yeah. keep us uh, keep us up to date. Keep keep in touch. Reach out if you if you need help spreading the word about stuff because this is this is a perfect project. This is a project that I love the most. Where it's it's not just some random school out in the middle of nowhere that a, a tiny group of people want to save for their own sort of nostalgic reasons. This is like this is about tomorrow and and the next day and the future. This isn't just about a, a, a cool old school though it plays plays a big role in it. So anyway, congratulations on how you guys, how far you guys have come so far, and uh, good luck in the next uh, six months ahead, okay? Thank you much. All right, thanks, Phil Edlin, for joining us on Cascade of History. Have a good night. You too. Right. That's Phil Edlin. He's project consultant for Save Parkland School. We will put all that information on the uh, – Cascade of History Facebook page. If you haven't liked the Facebook page yet, um, now is a good time to do that because we do post little th- things all throughout the week. We'll post little updates about stuff and links to interesting stories and sometimes previews about stuff that we're going to do. Um, let's see. I am going to play, you know, kind of a, in the news in the last week or so, this notion that um, one of the whales captured in uh, Puget Sound 50 years ago Lolita Tokate might be released or might be brought back to be released in in uh, in native waters. So I it made me think about Namu, and I wanted to play the old one of the old Namu songs, and we'll play that while we get Ken Zick on the line, our roving intrepid correspondent on Cascade of History. Come all you good people and hear my story concerning Namu, the killer whale. 
I'll tell you some things that are bloody and gory, and thereby hangs a tale. Live and let live, let nature be your teacher. Respect the life of your fellow creature. Live and let live, whatever you do, and always remember the killer whale Namu. It happened one time in the northwest waters to fishermen some whales they spied. They shot one whale, a six-ton female. She swam to the shore and she died. Her mate swam behind her, trying to find her, and oh how he cried and he mourned. Until Hank Donner, he happened upon her, and upon her mate so forlorn. Live and let live, let nature be your teacher. Respect the life of your fellow creature. Live and let live, whatever you do. And always remember the killer whale, Namu. Big Joe and Bert, they both tried to hurt Namu, the giant of the sea. But Hank Bradford's rifle said, boys, don't you trifle. This whale and this cove are for me. So Hank placed a net in the water so wet, and the townsfolk were scared through and through. But little Isa ran, lent Hank a helping hand, and they both made friends with Namu. Live and let live, let nature be your teacher. Respect the life of your fellow creature. Soon there begun that big salmon run, and Big Joe took after Namu. But before Joe could kill Namu, he did spill Big Joe and his boat in the blue. But Namu, he did save Big Joe from the waves, and the whale heard the great ocean call. Then everybody knew that the killer whale Namu, he wasn't a killer at all. Respect the life of your fellow creature. Live, let live, whatever you do, and always remember the killer whale Namu. So wait, let me write this down. Live and let live. Let nature be your teacher. Respect the life of your fellow creatures. Pretty simple rules to live by. Um, they did take a lot of liberties with the actual story of Namu for that film they made, which I don't know if you've ever seen it before, but I think it's called The Killer Whale Namu originally, but then when they re-released it on VHS, where I have a VHS, VHS copy of it, they called it My Friend Namu. And sad thing was, if you don't know who Namu was, uh, we'll have to get into that story at some other time, but he was a, a killer whale who was captured by mistake north of uh, Vancouver Island, dragged back to Seattle in, a, in an open water pen and displayed on the waterfront. And anyway, when they made a film starring Namu, it premiered at the old Orpheum Theater right there in downtown Seattle at about, oh, what is that, Stewart and 7th Avenue, 6th Avenue. And by the time the movie premiered, Namu had been dead for three, three weeks. He died of some kind of infection or something in his pen because whales aren't meant to be penned up. So anyway, so uh, speaking of all penned up, let's get our uh, let's get our roving correspondent. Ken Zick, can you hear me? I can hear you. Yeah, oh, good. All right. So uh, thanks for joining us tonight. I know uh, times we have not too many minutes left here on the big Cascade of History show, but I know you we sent you out earlier on a roving correspondent job, which you roving correspondent job, which you agreed to to go out and check out a bookstore that's been struggling and what did you find when you headed up to, uh, what was it, Greenwood tonight? Yeah, so up on, on Greenwood, there's a, a bookstore and uh, espresso shop and community space called the Cooth Buzzard. It's just, uh, it's on the east side of the street, just south of um, 83rd, or sorry, 85th. Yeah. And um, and it, it, they had an announcement earlier, or sorry, uh, beginning of the month that they were uh, threatened with closing. Basically, the business hasn't picked up after COVID, and it's been a bit of a struggle and it's an amazing story of local community folks who've used the space and loved the space and gathered for many events who came together to GoFundMe um, to keep the lights on and basically blew past two goals, raised over $50,000 in a matter of, like, days. Wow. Um, and so I, I went in I went to see if I could talk talk with the owner to find out, like, what the next plans were. And they actually 
It closed in early this season. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if that was out of relief or if it was, you know, like, hey, let's let's uh, save electricity. <laughs> so, um, so, but but the, the the good news, I actually talked to briefly to an employee who said that they're um, basically going to be bringing back community events, and and there's a group of folks who are looking for next steps for the uh, bookstore. Good. And and so yeah, so you know, it's a I think it's just a fantastic tale of. You know these vanishing community spaces. You know we've talked about other other institutions that are going by the wayside in favor of online, um, and this is uh, a great testament to you know people want to get together and be together like in each other's presence. You, you could almost say live and let live. Let nature be your teacher. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I also I also like the fact that this show and your role as the intrepid roving correspondent has sort of evolved. Like I think a few months ago we would have made you stand outside the store even though it was closed. <laughs> <laughs> Because now I think you're you're home, right? You're home down in uh, not too far from uh, the yeah, yeah. Seward Park, and yeah, uh, you know your your home's not threatened at all. There's no you're not yeah. going to be kicked out of there. There's no you know it's not like you're you're standing outside the anyway. I, I like that. I I like to acknowledge that the show has evolved. That we we treat our intrepid roving correspondent with more respect, and we're well, more realistic about what we ask you to do out there in the community. I want to I want to point out that my record is now two and two because because <laughs> two of the the institutions I've gone to report on did indeed shut down, but two of them have had a reprieve and a new, oh, a new wow. start life. So like Totem, Totem Bowl from whatever that was back in back in the fall, and then Booth uh, Buzzard now. So that's right. I'm, and and I'm, Totem I'm, Bowl or what's it called? Tech City Pin Fun oh, Funhead Center is still yeah. uh, is still operating as far as we know. It, um, it does, yeah. And then yeah, because then you went to the 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 skating rink, which shut down. Highland Ice Arena. Yeah. 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 We, did we send you out to Memorial Stadium one night before we did the live show from there? Uh, that is true. Yeah, that's okay. true. Actually, so we're two, two, and one because that's sort of that's kind of a tie right now. That's kind of undecided. <laughs> although it's probably doomed based on you know. <laughs> well, not if I can help it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll have to figure out some place we can send you next week. I noticed it was pretty rainy tonight too. It's sort of the idea of like being outside because we had talked. Oh, that's right. We had talked about sending you maybe to the cherry blossoms on the yeah. UW campus. Yep. But yep. it would be dark and there would be nobody there, and so. Anyway, we'll we'll think of some other place. Cindy. Maybe not next week. Maybe next week. We'll see. Um, but uh, we'll definitely have you out there. And again, we really appreciate your driving out there. And how many live radio shows about Pacific Northwest history are there? Number one, uh, other than this one, zero. And how many live Northwest history shows actually have an intrepid roving correspondent who drives around and goes to places and pesters people and stuff like that? That's you know that's a service that we're providing that as volunteers because we care about our community. So I yeah. thank you for doing that. Yeah, oh, I'm I'm happy to do it anytime we we got a project. I'm keen to go out there. All right. Well, I'm going to have to wrap things up here so I can get to the final credits and everything. But Ken Zick, intrepid roving correspondent for Cascade of History, thanks for joining us from uh, Safe and Sound. I'll tuck in at home tonight. <laughs> <laughs> my, my pleasure. All right. Good night, Ken. See you later. Intrepid roving correspondent Ken Zick reporting live from not too far from Seward Park. Uh, boy, okay, well, Cooth Buzzard, yeah, we'll put some, I'll put information on our Facebook page about their GoFundMe campaign, which has been wildly successful, and it looks like a community has stepped forward to save a business they love. All right, well, we'll be back next Sunday night with another set of guests joining us by phone from all over the old Oregon country, from, from all parts of Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and British Columbia, maybe parts of Montana, you never know. Ken Zick might be back at his house near Seward Park or maybe in some other exciting location around the city. Um, I want to thank Marcus Farner, the exhibitions uh, manager for Coquitlam Heritage. And I want to thank Phil Edland from the project consultant for Save Parkland School. You know, all the stuff we talk about on this show, it's history, but it's also, it's about community and about people stepping up to save things they care about and, I don't know, connect with their neighbors and have that sense of belonging that, you know, we all, we all need to have as human beings. So if history is the conduit for that stuff, well, that's, that's just fine by me. So, all right, um, please do join us next week. We're live every Sunday night at 8 p.m. Pacific time, Space 101.1 FM in the city of Seattle. You can get that on your old-fashioned radio even over in Kirkland, across the lake, the signal travels pretty well. And then any, any place else, you can get us all around the world at space101fm.org. There's also the podcast. You know, we're on SoundCloud. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all those places like that. Thanks for joining us tonight, folks. I'm Felix Bunnell. We'll see you next week for another episode of Cascade of History. Yeah. 
That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it, watch it. That's a slippery spot there. Oh, I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bonnell.